Hello and welcome to our fifth episode of Series 2 of the Sanyu Sisters podcast. I'm Tista. And I'm Amber. And just like that, we're in September and saying goodbye to summer. Um, What have been some of your highlights of summer, Amber? Well, it's been such a lovely time. Things opening up more and more. I've been able to host my family. We celebrated my youngest sibling graduate from university and finally became Dr. Wilson number four, which is really (laughs) exciting. Um, And my sister and her partner also got engaged in June, which was also um, just another excuse for plenty more celebrations. Um, I've also rotated clinical placement, as lots of the doctors do in the UK around August. So always a bit of upheaval, finding my feet again in a new setting. But so far, things are going well, and I'm really enjoying it. What about you, Tista? What have you been up to? Yeah, well, I mean, for the listeners at home um, who may not know, Amber is from a family of medics. So this is the (laughs) last of the Wilson siblings to actually be medics. We're done. We're done. (laughs) I'm sure your parents are thrilled. No more graduations. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, But yeah, huge congratulations to your brother. Um, So yeah, with restrictions slowly opening, this summer has been such a wonderful opportunity to spend some quality time with our friends and family. So whether that's having people over to stay or just getting to catch up with friends at a wedding or engagement party or 30th birthday, it's just been really, really lovely. Um, And Tom and I recently got back from a week in Scotland, which was incredible and definitely some much needed R&R. Um, and most excitingly, I survived wild camping. So that is definitely wins all around. <laughs> very good, very good. And we loved our recent episode with Wendy Graham, and it sounds like so many of you at home also did. We heard from Helen Brotherton, a pediatrician at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, found Wendy's wise words to never stop learning and to stay curious really, really resonated with her. Chris Holm, a journalist from Scotland, enjoyed listening and hearing how daughters themselves can be role models for us oldies. <laughs> and Agatha from the London School found Wendy's career fascinating and described Wendy's role in developing the sisterhood method to gain data on maternal mortality. Truly inspiring. Thank you all so much for reaching out because as ever, we really love hearing from you. So please do keep in touch with us on our Twitter at Sanyu Sisters or Instagram at Sanyu Sisters Podcast. We also have a brand new YouTube channel and we were so excited to be able to share the brilliant work that Duncan Shikuku and the team at LSTM Kenya have been doing on improving the quality of midwifery education and training in Kenya. So if you haven't had a chance to watch their video, please do head on over to the Sanyu Sisters YouTube channel after this. So on to our next guest. This month, Tista has been chatting to Vanessa Brizuela, who works in research strengthening at the Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Rights at the World Health Organization. We are really excited to hear what she has to say. I am so excited to introduce my friend and colleague, Vanessa Brizuela, who is a technical officer in the Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research at WHO. She and her team are leading efforts on research capacity building and strengthening in sexual and reproductive health and rights. Vanessa started her career in Argentina as a licensed psychologist. However, she has always had a passion for global maternal and newborn health. She's coordinated a host of sexual and reproductive education programs in New York, the Caribbean and Buenos Aires, 
and she's worked for other UN agencies, including UNICEF, and holds a doctorate in public health with a concentration in maternal and child health from Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She completed her thesis at WHO on factors that influence provider awareness on maternal sepsis, an approach to developing an awareness campaign to accompany the WHO maternal sepsis study. And most recently, Vanessa and I worked together within the Knowledge Synthesis Group at PMNCH, and I know firsthand how inspiring, dedicated, and committed she is to progressing the agenda for maternal, newborn, and child health. And so I'm absolutely delighted to be able to speak to Vanessa today and share her journey into international health. So welcome, Vanessa. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks, Tista. I'm super excited to be here, too. <laughs> so are we. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, Vanessa, you've had such an interesting journey into international health. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your story began? Well, um, I think the first part of it is it was definitely not linear. <laughs> um, I started out as a licensed psychologist in a city that has the most amount of psychologists per capita. Oh my God. Um, so, uh, but I knew I, I loved mental health, but I, there was something else that was my calling and, um, I had, you know, I had my interest peaked with public health even back then. I didn't know mm. it though. Mm. Um, and then because of circumstances in life and other things, I ended up moving to the U S where I did a master's degree and that's sort of where it clicked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't sure at that point, I, I didn't know much about global health at all. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do something public health related that brought some of the education component into it. Um, and I discovered through coursework and through colleagues and eventually through my, one of the first jobs I had after getting my master's, um, I discovered sexual reproductive health. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, my, my journey was not, I mean, I, I'm saying it's not linear because I've kind of systematically and as time progressed, become the oldest in all the things that I start. <laughs> uh, so I realized others have gotten there faster. Um, but I arrived with a completely different set of um, experiences. And, mm. and, and um, I don't, I don't want to say knowledge because I don't think that I'm necessarily more knowledgeable. Um, so I'd say like the beginning of it was starting to work at Columbia University um, in New York and working with adolescents. Um, really pushing the agenda, uh, or, or like pushing the envelope rather, mm-hmm. on sexual and reproductive health with young people, mm-hmm. um, and something that was still pretty uh, difficult to implement in public um, middle schools and high schools. And so that's sort of where it began. And then I started moving more towards older women, mm-hmm. not so much adolescents that much. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so it has not been, um, you know, an entry point. It's been a journey mm-hmm. that I've traversing over the past yeah. 15 or so years. And what makes you so passionate about sexual and reproductive health, Vanessa? That's a really good question. Um, I think it, it, it kind of fits neatly with being a woman and feeling quite passionate about you know, being a woman and being, and and being a feminist and, and Mm. also being 
extremely conscious of how privileged I have been mm-hmm. um, for having been given the choices that I that I was given. Um, and when you compare, when I compare my um, opportunities with those of many women around the world, it it becomes a question of like injustice. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of like mm-hmm. the, the the power behind it. And, and, you know, not, not having done anything for, for the privilege I have, you know, Mm -hmm. I had parents who, um, sent me to a good school and, um, supported me to go to university and to then get, um, graduate, postgraduate education. And, um, and that was for no doing on my own. I mean, yes, I did go through all those educational instances myself, but, um, the -hmm. opportunity was not something that I did anything to deserve, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I think that's sort of where it comes from. That's, that's the, the fire behind it. And I think sexual reproductive health is such an integral part of who we are as humans. Yeah. Um, and the fact that yeah. that can determine your opportunities, where you land in life, what you can or cannot do, how you deal with certain um, aspects of life. I don't know. It seems quite... Um, Mm. fundamental to that. Um, I think even starting out working with teenagers and realizing that for a lot of teenagers, um, there aren't that many options other than, you know, doing what generations have done before them, having children very young or not really necessarily deciding when this was, whether this was their choice or not. And realizing that even having that, being able to have that question was really unique um so i i don't know it's kind of all came together with that mm-hmm. one topic and once i discovered it i was like yeah this is what i want to do for the rest of my life yeah and i think it is that concept of privilege and inequity that does drive many people working in this field right that um is the fire as you put it um behind most of the work and projects that that get done I'm interested, you you mentioned that when you were in Buenos Aires, you know, it's the highest number of psychologists per capita. You'd have to fact check that, but but it is among the highest. <laughs> what sort of, I mean, coming from that background, what sort of skills or what sort of things did you see that could translate from that clinical side to all the work that you've been doing with um, sexual reproductive health? Hmm, yeah, that's good. Maybe the... The curiosity, the asking questions, you know, mm-hmm. if any of your listeners have ever been to therapy and or and or have ever encountered a psychologist working, we ask a lot of questions. Um, we try to find out, you know, more about what's happening. We try to understand. I did not realize it back then, but I think that is sort of like the the essence of a researcher, right? You're, you want to understand things more and you want to get to the bottom of things and and all with a purpose, right, of trying to mm. improve health or improve well-being. Um, so I don't know. I think it comes from there. And it's funny because when I, when I told my parents that I, I was, I was going to study psychology, because in Argentina, I don't know what it's like in the UK, but you need to determine your degree when you sign up for university. So at 18, mm-hmm. you sign up for the career you want to uh, study, and that's what you're going to do. If you need to switch, then you need to drop out and start all mm-hmm. over again. So at 18, I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to study psychology. And my dad, I think, was 
not too happy about it. Um, and and I remember him asking me, but why do you want to be a psychologist? Like, what is it about it? I'm like, honestly, because I think it, it'll help me in anything that I want to do in life. Yeah, I think it's going to be the tools that I need for, for anything that I find interesting, at least. Mm. I don't know that he was very convinced, but it was convincing enough for me. Yeah, no, totally. And I love that idea of curiosity because it is that that underpins how we can make change, right? Without being curious as to what the solutions are or what, or even curious as to where the gaps are. We yeah. can't then try and unpick to see what could be potential solutions um, together. Um, yeah. You've had so many incredible professional and personal experiences across the globe from New York, um, Caribbean, um, from Buenos Aires. What would you say have been any sort of career highlights or turning points for you? Um, I think every one of the moves (laughs) that I did. Um, So moving to the U.S. at 25 and, um, and then starting a master's degree the year after or two, um, those were definitely turning points, um, you know, and also understanding what other uh, people do. And, and, and when I first learned about global health, mm. I wasn't in Argentina. I had never heard of global health in Argentina. Mm. Um, it was when I moved to New York that I, I, I heard of people doing this type of work that to me mm. sounded like coming out of a movie. Um, (laughs) and I I think like each of the moves in terms of moving countries, moving jobs, moving each of those gave me an opportunity for a completely different type of growth and, and, Mm. and seeing things differently. Um, and starting my master's, uh, then starting the doctorate, which I started 10 years after graduating from my master's. So when I'm telling you, I'm normally the oldest one. That's why it is. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be the youngest, and somehow at some point in my life, I started becoming the oldest in the room. Yet the most qualified. But yeah, that those are definitely turning points. And of course, then um, getting involved with WHO was definitely one of the latest um, career highlights and, and turning points for, for me mm. in terms of the reach and the breadth of the type of projects you can get involved in um, mm. at the global level is, is quite incredible. How did you find that? Because I think that's really fascinating to move from what you were effectively doing were projects in in certain countries and certain places, and then to move to that high level um, organization. Were there any big changes to you know that you had to take personally or professionally to get to that point? Um, was it a huge step up, or was it was it quite similar? Um, I think different answers to that. There's the one part which it was really, really hard to get into this field of global health. Um, Mm -hmm. There's like a catch 22 aspect to it, which is if you haven't worked in global health, then you're not going to find a job in global health. But if you want a job in global health, you need the experience in global health, but you yeah. need the experience to get it. So it's like one of these like <laughs> ellipses yeah. that you can't get into, yeah. um, which was quite challenging for me at, at the beginning. And uh, I ended up leaving my job in, in New York because I wanted to explore global health. And I realized that if I continued working what the U.S. denominates domestic health, I wasn't going to get into any of the you know international health mm. experience. So there was that aspect. Um, and then when it comes to like how that change came about, I think going to graduate school again and getting the connections and, and, and getting to know more people. And I think one of the benefits of having started my doctorate in my late 30s was 
um, that I had a better idea of what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, I'd already kind of decided I like maternal health and I like this type of work. Um, And I'm not sure that I want to be a researcher, but I definitely want to keep working in this field. Um, And so I used my time um, at Harvard to really, you know, get to know the people and the players and and reach out to the people doing the work, (laughs) which, you know, allowed me to then get in contact with people at WHO. And I, I, I don't know that I can identify whether that was any different. I think every experience has been an enormous learning experience. And, yeah. and you know, of like my head hurts, I'm learning too much. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I think those are like some of the different aspects to this, you know, progression and, and change of going from project-based work to, you know, global health um, agency work. Yeah. And I think that's a wonderful sort of message, really, is actually how to creatively use your opportunities. So if you are going into an educational institution or whether you're working within a program management, it is sort of trying to build that network and using that to to your advantage of where you want to go next and to position yourself as best as possible, which you've clearly done so brilliantly. Um, I, I I would tend to disagree. I think I'm really bad at networking or I used to hate it, but I'm genuinely curious. So that, yeah. that I think is true. Like that is genuine on my side. So um, I went into my doctorate saying, I don't know, I, I need to learn more. Mm. And I think that gives you the opportunity to see things that you wouldn't see otherwise. Mm. Um, so, so yeah, my networking was more based on Hi, please tell me more about you because this is super interesting. <laughs> then don't you want to work with those people? Those are the people you want to work with, right? That actually really believe in what they're doing. Of course. And uh, fortunately, there are a lot of people like that in this field. Uh, the people who are genuinely um, passionate and, yeah. you know, the ones that you can actually see the sparkle in their eyes when they're telling you what they do for work and, and, and why they got into it and what project they're working on. That. That is really inspiring when you meet people like that. And how do you keep that sparkle, Vanessa? Because, you know, when we speak to so many people that have, throughout their careers, have been part of loads of exciting projects, but they often see the the dark side of international health and the, the problems that lie with international health. How do you maintain that sparkle throughout? Hmm. Yeah, I mean... It's not not difficult to become jaded, right? Um, uh, especially after working in, in a certain environment for many years or, or in a certain type of work. Um, maybe the answer to that is I really have moved around quite a bit physically um, and you know, job and experience wise. So maybe that has helped. But um, one of the things that I try to do to myself with myself, you know, I like checking in with myself every, every so often is like, okay, why am I doing this? Why is it that this is important to me? Uh, yeah, the memo I'm writing right now is not necessarily straightforward, the linkage between what I'm writing and um, a life saved or a woman who is able to access the care that she needs. Um, but if I'm able to understand it from a you know, big picture kind of perspective, um, where if you want, it, it could seem like, oh, we're all little cogs in a big machine. But mm. I, I try to think of it more like, you know, baby steps. You need to, mm. you know, sometimes need to do a lot of things that are not super fun, but 
that's because there's a lot of things that are super fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I guess I still like my job. <laughs> um, yeah, again, very privileged to have found something that I really like. Uh, so honestly, I think that's, that, that might be the answer to it, to try to find something that you really like, um, mm-hmm. that, that it, that makes, you know, waking up in the morning when the alarm clock goes off and it's winter and it's dark outside and you're wondering why are you waking up at that time? Um, <laughs> that, that gives a sufficient reason to be like, oh yeah, well, you know, I have yeah. this going on for me today and this will be yeah. fun. And yeah. yeah. And how do you, I mean, when you're talking about these super fun projects that you've been able to to be part of, that you work towards, what have been the sort of, I don't know, highlights for you in terms of or highlight projects that you've been mm. a part of? Yeah. Well, the, the project that I came to work on um, at WHO is probably like the most exciting project I've been involved in just because of the magnitude mm-hmm. um, and also the 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 team that I work with, um, it, it's, it's been really incredible. Uh, this is for the global maternal sepsis study. This, this is a kind of thing that I'm, that I was saying before, when I take a look back and I'm like, wow, I was involved in that. Like I was involved <laughs> in a study that we implemented in 52 countries, oh, yeah. low, middle, high income, um, over 700 facilities. Wow. Um, it was a super complex enrollment process and, um, we developed a campaign to go with it. It it was a really good experience of, you know, um, robust public health project. You know, there was a, a research component that was strictly about data collection. It was an epi study. So it was you know, trying to assess um, prevalence or incidence or, I mean, we didn't do either, but like trying to get at those aspects of, of, of EPI and then um, something al- along the lines of health communication and trying to put together this campaign. Um, and, it, and, and maternal sepsis is something that's so much broader than just a clinical thing, which involves yeah. facility-wide um, aspects. It involves, you know, individual aspects. So I don't know. It was it's it's been um, extremely interesting to have been part of that, and and we're still you know finalizing some of the analyses. Um, so it's yeah. you know the gift that gives on giving. <laughs> um, but that in terms of a of a specific project has mm-hmm. been um, really like a highlight. But it's also kind of interesting because while working on that project. Um, my colleague and I, you know, we would have these conversations of like, wow, you know, how we're all learning in this process. And I'm sure that a lot of people are learning in the countries. And since, you know, one of the mandates of um, the department I work in is to strengthen research capacity, they're like, wait, should we look at that and see if something happened? And that gave birth to another project. And then I ended up, you know, joining that other team at um, HRP that does research capacity strengthening. Mm. So it was sort of like a really interesting marriage there that happened. Um, and, and, and being involved in this aspect of research has also been super interesting because in a way it's brought me back to the origin of health education and, um, and training and all those years <laughs> doing trainings and doing um, education and trying to even not specific to research, but 
specific to trying to um, advance and, and, and get a, a stronger workforce. It's very, I mean, it's fascinating and actually quite inspiring to hear how things from earlier in your career have woven in to mm-hmm. projects and work that you've done later in your career. So just as you said, it is an ongoing learning process. There is never a point that you sort of think this is a clear direction because actually things from the past can actually influence what happens in the future, which is a fantastic. It's fantastic to hear growth, really. Um, And I think that's a really cool idea, too. Um, So just touching back on what you were saying about and I know um, is one of your key interests is this concept of research capacity building and capacity mm-hmm. strengthening. Um, why is this so important to you? That is super interesting to ask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think the example I provided you just now was like sort of where it, it crystallized in a way. It became mm. something tangible mm. um, because we were involved in this enormous uh, research project that involved a lot of people. I mean, some countries had over 20 facilities that were involved and each facility had you know their own a whole bunch of data collectors and then they were doing data analysis Mm -hmm. and then realizing how um, critical having good quality data is and even reflecting back on myself I did not have a training in research in my first career Mm -hmm. Uh, you know as a psychologist at least in in Argentina it's focused primarily on clinical work so Mm -hmm not trained as researchers and then realizing how this is so important and that the the findings of what you're 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 going after are critical is I don't think it's a it's an evident answer like I I don't know that it's like oh I decided that this is what I want to do with my life yeah Um, Yeah. but it sort of it sort of came about because of um this experience that I had Mm -hmm. um, with this big research project and my past experiences in doing trainings and and understanding the the importance of really knowing what you're doing and why you're doing it and for what purpose and and I think also it's it's going back to this issue of privilege and um, you know having had the Mm -hmm. opportunities that I had Mm -hmm. um, yeah I got to go to really good universities um, and I had the opportunity to to encounter um, you know really uh, great instructors Mm -hmm. and I understand that this is not the case for everyone um, but also you know, there's 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 a lot of equity issues as well. Mm. Is sort of what I'm going at. Mm. Um, <clears throat> it's about listening to what matters to people in different places and why it's important to them and why yeah. we we should be working on things that make sense to um, the the communities that you're you're trying to work with. Yeah. So I think all of this sort of speaks to that yeah. concept of ensuring that. The, the research that's being done is of good quality yeah. um, and that people are engaged in the process and take ownership over what they are looking after. Yeah. Um, I think that's my, that's my very convoluted answer to your very simple question. <laughs> no, but I think it's, it's, it is that com- concept of inclusivity, isn't it? That actually, yeah. you know, we need the right, we need every voice at the table. It shouldn't exactly. be just, a, you know, 
certain select people being included, but that if we want to have a true international health, it needs to be representative of everyone. Yeah. Um, and I think that is exactly the kind of work that you have, you know, dedicated your work to, um, which is this sort of research capacity strengthening and strengthening linkages, strengthening these communities. So um, what do you, I mean, I'm curious, what do you see the end vision or the end point so if we were to say that, you know, we're, we're looking to strengthen research capacity, what is the primary outcome for you? What would be the gold outcome? Hmm. Well, I mean, there's, I'm not best first person to speak about this, but there is quite a strong movement um, called Decolonize Global Health. Yeah. These are one of the things that we str- that I struggle with in terms of, okay, this kind of isn't the best way to to address it, but it's mm. the best possible way we have right now yeah. um, of having these like big funders, big institutions sort of lead in a lot of these efforts uh, globally. But I think the end goal would be that um, we're all entrusted and capable and have the opportunity to really address the issues that are important to us. Yeah. Um, and that said, I do still think that there there is and there may always be, or at least in my lifetime, um, a need for for organizations, global institutions such as WHO. Mm-hmm. There are some issues that um, somebody needs to be the watchdog in a way. Um, mm-hmm. If nobody, if you left it up to the countries, a lot of countries would not do any research or any work in abortion, for example, which yeah. is highly controversial in a lot of places around the world. Yeah. Um, if you left it up to the countries, uh, a lot of them would not be doing anything around different topics, FGM or violence against women and girls. Um mm-hmm. Uh, under the premise of, you know, this is culturally acceptable or this is something that has or has not been done before. So we're mm-hmm. not really um, and how countries prioritize have to do with a lot of different issues mm-hmm. that um, exceed sometimes the health conditions. So I think there's always a, there's always going to be the need for somebody at a global level to be able to steward the ship in a way uh, yeah. for some of these topics. Right. Yeah. But I think the end goal would be, you know, that. Um, individual communities, individual countries, individual um, regions are able to, to, to work on the topics that relate to them the most. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then there's always going to be the need of global institutions when you have global, you know, epidemics like the one yeah. we have right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where collaboration and, and working together is required. Yeah, <laughs> with good coordination. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think it's so true that that idea, and I love that sort of image of of these global organisations acting as stewards um, to help move, you know, everyone in a united fashion, rather than people working in silos. Exactly. And and, and I think that's a really ben- big benefit of global institutions is providing that learning and bi directional learning as well across countries, so that people are sharing the knowledge that they're generating. Mm-hmm. and the ideas that they have so um yeah i couldn't agree more um and it's always so inspiring hearing the amazing work that you are doing vanessa because it is steering this ship or this um, health ship if we were to call it certainly in the right direction um, <laughs> one, would <hope. laughs> one would hope what would you say so this is a question we've been asking all our guests what would you say is one inspirational female role model that you've had i've been very lucky to have been surrounded by a lot of inspirational women in my life. 
Um, I am one of three sisters. Um, but you know, and starting with my mother, I think my mother was, um, an extraordinarily strong, Mm. passionate, uh, committed and, um, you know, dedicated woman, Mm -hmm. uh, who I guess, you know, the profession, like as on, on a professional stance, like she really moved things forward for herself as well. Mm. And so I think that's, in retrospect, I can see that as being inspirational, probably not when I was a teenager. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, and then I've, for those of us who work in sexual reproductive health, there tend to be a lot of women <laughs> working in this field. Um, and that's been, to, for me, wonderful. I, I really have enjoyed working with, you know, powerful um, committed, strong-willed women who will get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and everywhere from, I mean, yeah, I think most of my bosses have always been women mm-hmm. um, and, you know, very different, <laughs> all of them, but mm-hmm. each of them an inspiration from my uh, my advisor at Harvard, Um the first woman I worked with at uh, WHO, who I, I worked with as an intern, uh, and then jo- she joined my um, doctoral committee, um, to oh. my current supervisor, my prior supervisor, who we still find projects to work with, on together. Um, yeah, I feel like I've been pretty lucky uh, mm. to, to surround myself by, by really inspirational women, including my sisters as well, even though mm. we work in completely different fields. But um yeah but sometimes it's the best space isn't it when when they are in different fields that you can feed off different things off each other Um, yeah yeah I I find it really empowering to be surrounded by by powerful in the sense that you know you get things done not powerful in the sense of president of x or y country you know um powerful in that you can deliver exactly yeah Mm. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's the quiet ones that are really delivering the most. Yeah. (laughs) It's always that, isn't it? The quiet person in the room that doesn't say much, but actually... (laughs) It's actually doing the work. Exactly. You always watch (laughs) them on a Zoom call who don't speak. Those are the ones that you've really got to keep your eye on. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it's been fascinating. We pulled so many fantastic bits and pieces together today. Um, What would you say... So this is, again, our final question... Hmm. What would you say, Vanessa, if you were to look back at yourself when you were 18 and just starting out in this, in the big, big bad world, um, what would you say was one piece of advice that you would give yourself? There's an inclination for me to be, you know, revisionist in my, in my advice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I would tell myself is, you're doing good. You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, I, and I've brought this up a few times, but Having uh, given myself the time between the different degrees that I that I have, having given myself the time to explore different jobs and different environments and have different experiences, mm-hmm. I think that's that's been invaluable, and that that is so integral to who I am as a professional today. And um, it's it's not a recipe. It doesn't mean that following the same things I did will get you to the same place I did. And hopefully not, you'll get to a better place. But, um, 
<laughs> there's always better places. Um, <laughs> but I feel quite lucky that I've been, you know, had the opportunities to have the experiences I had. And obviously, at times you're like, oh, I wish I had done that before. Um, I would have liked maybe to have to have encountered research at an earlier stage in my life. Mm-hmm. But then that would have meant I would have had to give up the other experiences that I've had because I only came into this field a little bit later in life. So I think the advice is really listen to to what you want. And sometimes even when things don't look like they're straightforward, they'll get there. But also to be true to that. Um, I went through several periods in my life because of different life circumstances that I was like, well, um, maybe I'll just like switch careers or do something different yeah and I'd struggle with myself it's like I don't want to do something different yeah <laughs> why am, why do I have to do this um I understand that I need to work to survive and I need to pay bills but um can I make this work for myself yeah. um and and that to me has been super important to really follow what um where the fire is uh, yeah. and make that be my purpose rather than you know say well i'll do this for now and i'll find my fire later Mm. i mean other for other people that might work for me it would have Mm. been completely detrimental so i'm i'm happy that i stuck to my to to my uh, principles or 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 my desires or or my interests um yeah and but with a with an open mind to explore different things gosh that is incredibly motivational (laughs) and i'm feeling very inspired for uh (laughs) this evening just as we're podcasting to and i'm totally gonna follow my fire sometimes your fire needs tells you you need a nap huh yeah. and that should also be part of it <laughs> good so i hope everybody else at home just like me is going to trust their fire um, <laughs> wherever that leads them but listen vanessa it's been an absolute pleasure getting to chat to you and i think it's been amazing to hear your experiences and actually how your sort of really rich and varied career has led you to this amazing place that you are now, but also that really fantastic idea that you're still growing and there's um, so much still to come. So it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thanks, Tista. It's been really lovely. And if anything, I I do hope that people find what they like (laughs) to do. Uh, And sometimes it'll be many, many different things throughout different periods of their life. And that's also great. Um, what's, What's been... What's a privilege is to be able to follow that. And if you have that privilege, I would suggest you use it. Gosh, amazing. (laughs) (laughs) So, Amber, what did you think? Well, first and foremost, I just love Vanessa. (laughs) I loved her vibe. I thought she was a really, it was just a really fantastic chat. And I personally took so much away from it. I think in whatever we do, uh, career-wise, we always need to check ourselves from time to time to remember why we started it out in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I mean, Vanessa chats quite a lot about her passion for women's health, and that's so clear. Um, And she communicated that so well, I think, throughout the episode. Um, But one thing I resonated really with her was that as women just born into privilege, we have so much to be thankful for. And her comments just really provoked my thinking about, well, what is the flip side of that and how much do we take for granted yeah. I mean we have autonomy in our decisions pretty much about everything that we do um in who we partner with um, in life what school we attend and um, to get an education 
we have access to contraception, we have freedom to choose when we start that, when we stop that. And when those decisions and opportunities aren't in your control or available to you, it was just a reminder that it's very easy to see how suddenly life begins to look very different, that the path that is almost set out before you begins to look very different. Um, And it's that personally, that, that injustice that does bother me and certainly motivates me to want to see and bring about change. Um, in the sphere of global maternal health and sexual and reproductive health I think also her piece of advice so you're doing good you'll get there don't we all just need to hear that from time to time yeah (laughs) (laughs) I mean um I've had times this year sort of agonizing over career decisions and feeling a bit of a crossroads about things and ultimately I made the difficult decision to step away from academia in favor of clinical work because sort of I had to I guess be true to myself that that's where ultimately my passion has lay but now I'm left wondering where do I fit into the world of global maternal health knowing that I am so passionate about it so thank you Vanessa for bringing me some words of hope as I still figure (laughs) all of that out moving forward in the rest of this year what about you Tista? Oh no well definitely no matter what you're doing and but you're going to be an absolute success so there's no (laughs) there are no um uh concerns about that um, but you know what I've loved the most about this series is really getting the chance to get to know these trailblazing successful women yeah. and the people behind them. And I think you really got a sense in this episode of this warm, friendly and grounded person that Vanessa okay. is. Um, she really is the epitome of being true to herself. And I think the reason she's been so successful is because of her, as she puts it, fire um, and passion for what she does because it's genuine and honest and you really do hear that in this episode um one topic she repeatedly as you mentioned came back to was this idea of being privileged and her awareness of that privilege and I think for all of us that this is something that we need to continually check ourselves on and then also challenge ourselves to think how can I level the playing field to make sure that every voice is heard because we really do all have a role to play here Um, I also loved her insights on the huge value that global organizations such as UN agencies have in holding countries accountable to provide essential health care for all and therefore uniting us all for better health. And I think this couldn't be more true, especially now um, with the evolving situation that's unfolding in Afghanistan. And our thoughts are with those, um, those there at the moment. So all in all, I came away from this episode feeling really inspired to trust my own voice and find my own path and direction. And I hope that the listeners at home felt the same way too. Absolutely. So we would love to know what you did think at home. If you've listened to this episode, what did you enjoy? Please join us on Twitter at Sanyu Sisters or over on Instagram at Sanyu Sisters Podcast. We would love to keep that conversation going. Absolutely. And next month is our last episode in the series. <laughs> and Amber will be speaking to the wonderful Professor Veronique Felipe from the March Centre at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And we can't wait to hear what she has to say. So until next time.